As you know from earlier episodes, there are many missing people in the area where Shermantine and Herzog lived who are suspected to be victims of the pair. But their killing spree wasn't contained to the Linden area of California. They are thought to have committed heinous crimes in each and every state they visited on their various hunting trips. In this episode, we will be telling you about two ladies who are believed to be the victims of the Speed Freak Killers. Firstly, we are speaking to Alan Fox, who is a retired homicide detective from Reno. Alan will be telling us about Terry Ann Forche, who went missing in 1996. During his interview, Alan mentions wells being dug in San Joaquin County. We will be telling you more about these in our next episode. We asked Alan to tell us about how he got involved in the Speed Freak Killers case. I'm Alan Fox, a uh, retired Reno police robbery homicide detective. I kind of had a penchant for cold cases, so anytime something came up with a cold case, I tended to stick my nose in it. In my in between certain cases, and when I had opportunities, I would uh, continue to investigate certain cold cases, mainly the ones I I found where children were involved. We had three murdered children and that are currently unsolved in the Reno area. I really went after that, and that was my motivation for going into homicide, but I knew I'd be taking on a large caseload, and I knew that I would have to pretty much investigate a lot of those on my own time. But I did, and, uh, you know, I actually helped with the North Las Vegas case because I thought it could be connected to one of ours. Turned out it wasn't any time, especially with children, you you find a a suspect uh, eventually becomes a defendant. There's always more questions that need to be answered that you can't possibly answer. And uh, when it involves children, you wonder how many more they might be responsible for, what else have they done? And it's the same with certain types of murders. Probably most of my murders were perpetrated by one person uh, against a person that they knew or gang members that were just uh, retaliating against territory, uh, against somebody in their territory or, or, you know, something as stupid as a color of a rag or something, you know. So sometime in March of 2012, I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle, which I rarely read. I I just happened to have one nearby and was just browsing through it. And I I saw the uh, Speed Freak Killers article written by Kevin Fagan. 
Kevin Fagan is a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. He covers a lot of murders and a lot of unsolved cases. This particular article that Alan was reading was about remains that had been found in San Joaquin County. Kevin's article mentioned an informant that he had spoken to who used to share a cell with Herzog. The informant claimed that Herzog told him that he and Shermantine had killed people in Utah, Reno, Santa Barbara and New Mexico. Alan's ears pricked up at the mention of Reno. They didn't have many cold cases, but they had a few. Alan decided to give Kevin a call to find out more. I gave Kevin a call. I asked him if he could uh, put me in touch with his informant. And, you know, I, I didn't ask him his informant's name. I, I asked him, you know, just please call him. Uh, ask him if he'll talk to me. If necessary, uh, he could not identify himself and and uh, we could talk over the phone. However, uh, Kevin Fagan called me back just, you know, within 20 minutes and said, yeah, he's he's amiable to meeting with you and talking about it. I had given him two names of missing women that we were working. One was but uh, one by the name of Star Palumbo, and the other one was Terry Forche. Terry Forche was in uh, 1996, and I knew Star Palumbo couldn't have been their victim because they were in custody when she went missing. But I threw that out there just as a uh, kind of a test. Sure enough, uh, he, he said, I don't recognize Star Palumbo, but I do recognize the Terry Forche name. Alan decided that the informant could be credible and was definitely worth pursuing, so he arranged a meeting with him. So I arranged a meeting, I met with him, and uh, some of the things he told me, you know, they have some uh, credence to them because of the time frame and the fact that we have never found Terry Forche. You know, after uh, speaking with him, I, I started reading more and I started contacting people and I contacted uh, the detective at Sam Joaquin first and she pretty much was dismissive and she said yeah that guy's you know not credible he's uh, a drug user and you know she she wasn't interested in what he had to say so I, I went and met with him you know I he he is a, a convict and he he is a drug user, but there's always some truth within a lot of what most people say. You can't dismiss everything, and sometimes you go down these rabbit holes, and that's the job. You, you eliminate. After speaking with the informant, Alan decided it was time to contact the FBI. I called uh, the FBI. Somebody had told me that they were still interviewing Shermantine. So I contacted an FBI agent. There was only one assigned to Stockton. And uh, I told him what I was looking at. He said, well, their Sacramento agents were going to interview Shermantine within a, a day or two, and that they were uh, willing to bring the Terry Forche picture and information in and ask Shermantine about it. I emailed them everything I had not everything, but, you know, the meat and potatoes of the case and Terry Forche's most recent uh, booking photo. And uh, they went and uh, 
they came back a couple of days later and told me that uh, Shermantine didn't recognize any of them. Alan was obviously disappointed that Shermantine didn't recognize Terry and was wondering what to do next when he got a call from bounty hunter Leonard Padilla. Some point I got a call from Leonard Padilla and he said Shermantine called him and said, you know, he thought he may have seen Herzog with Terry. As things went on, that became kind of Sherman Tyne's kind of throwdown excuse was Herzog. Uh, he knows Herzog did this and this and this. Alan continued to investigate and was searching for more people who were involved in the Speed Freak Killers case. He was put in touch with Jeff Reinick, who is now retired from the FBI. Jeff put Alan in touch with Sacramento Senator Kathleen Galgiani and also suggested Alan speak to Barbara Jackson, Shermantine's sister. After I contacted Reineck, he gave me the information about Kathleen Galgiani, her contact information, and that she was really well-versed in this whole case. He suggested that, uh, that I speak with relatives of Shermantine, and he pointed me in their direction. And... The day I went to go interview Barbara Jackson, uh, Sherman Tyne's sister, my partner and I were driving down there and we had got a call from uh, Leonard advising that uh, Sherman Tyne had just sent a uh, map and there was an indication where Terry Forche might be. So we headed down there. When my partner and I split up, he went with Leonard and drove around with the map and I continued my interview with Barbara Jackson. And Barbara Jackson gave me information, somebody that Shermantine and Herzog had rented a house from. And she gave me the guy's name and, and uh, she told us a lot about growing up and how Wes was and that uh, she suspected that uh, one of their uncles had molested you know, several of the kids. And she explained that uh, that was, it was very stressful for her. She also described her mother as being a very mean person. I can't tell you everything she told me. I, I wouldn't want to tell you, but I think uh, you could imagine you either had a sad life or a rough life in that household and you either got tough or, you know, probably depressed. And she had told me once when Herzog was about 10 years old, he lived not far from them. And uh, Wesley and Herzog were, had been friends for, uh, since they were kids. And uh, one time Herzog had come over to the house really scared, saying that his dad had had a gun and was threatening to kill his mom. And, you know, she, she said Herzog was, uh, you know, really a scared young little boy. And we, did, we didn't go into how that resolved, but, you know, she had several stories like that. At a time when her mother shot at one of her uncles with a shotgun. And it was interesting because when Barbara told me the story, she, she was in tears. And when Wesley tells me, Wesley was there too for the shooting, and Wesley thought it was funny. He was laughing as he was telling us his story. Same story. So, you know, they both were credible in that regard about uh, what happened. 
Anyway, so, the, you know, I finish, I, I find out this information about a place and Barbara Jackson details several places where they used to party and ideas about, uh, you know, if they did kill a lot of people where bodies could be. The one, one place she described was this particular person that they rented from. But my partner and I, we came back about a week later and went to uh, to interview this guy. He 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 lives over in I think Visalia now. So we drove down to Visalia and we cold hit him. We uh, we knocked on his door and I asked him if if he could show us where this property was that uh, he had rented to Sherman Tyne and Herzog. And he, he said he would, and so the, the whole time we're talking, and he tells us that he always thought Sherman Tyne was the dominant person in that relationship. And he, he said when he had that place rented to him, they had dug this huge pit. Uh, you know, he described it as being, uh, you know, like 10 feet deep and, you know, 12 or 16 feet square. And they had these huge logs that they had this massive bonfire going in there. And uh, so we drove out and he showed us the property that he rented to them. He doesn't own it anymore. We knocked on the door, spoke with the residents there. They allowed us, explained who we were, what we were doing. They allowed us to go back into the back area where this guy was gonna show us where the pit was, this burning pit. And sure enough, we go back there and he described, he goes, it was right about here. And then he was surprised. He goes, oh, look, you can still kind of see the outline of it. This is like uh, 20 or 15 years later. He was right. You could see there was a depression as though over time that that soil there had compacted over whatever was in there, which is common with dead bodies. That wasn't the case in this particular case, but a lot of times when a body's been buried for a while as it decomposes the the weight of the ground kind of compresses it and so you get a little uh, dip in the ground after finding the remains of the pit alan shared what he knew with leonard padilla leonard suggested they get a cadaver dog out to the location and he knew just the person so i had that information and leonard padilla also knew about this i shared that information with him and he had brought out a cadaver dog out to that location and the dog hit on indicating that there may be, you know, uh, bodies perhaps in the, in that area. But uh, Leonard assured me he didn't show the dog handler the exact area. He just took him to the property and he said the dog hit on that area that uh, the renter had pointed out. Alan was on his way back to Vegas for work, so he let the Reno FBI know about the site and said he would update them more when he was back in the area. The FBI agent that was informed was actually assigned to the Sacramento office, so everyone was updated. The next day, Alan received a call from Stockton FBI advising him that they had found a potential site for Terry Forche's remains. He didn't mention he already knew about it and carried on with what he was working on. When the Stockton FBI discovered Allen had already known about the pit site, they called him back asking why he didn't mention it and then the call turned a lot less friendly. 
He went on to tell me that I had no business being outside of my jurisdiction conducting an investigation. This isn't exactly what I said, but we communicated. I said, you got enough information to start an investigation and you won't. And he said, that doesn't meet the standard of probable cause to start an investigation. He was trying to talk circles around me and then I knew what and who I was dealing with that he was just trying to get out of getting the FBI totally involved in the investigation. And I explained to him, you only need reasonable suspicion to begin an investigation, not probable cause. Probable cause is for an arrest. And there was plenty of that, but I got the feeling FBI didn't want to step on anybody's toes, particularly in that jurisdiction, and particularly as sheriff. You know, they really have to, uh, their resources are local law enforcement. I could see the tension building between uh, Reno PD and San Joaquin sheriffs. Not the deputies, it, it was the sheriff. Alan arrived in Vegas to several calls telling him to check out the Sacramento News. And when he did, law enforcement were digging in the spot that him and Leonard had found. Then Alan received a call from Reno's chief of police. He called me and said, what's this sheriff keep calling? You know, he's leaving all these messages. He sounds really angry because the chief had been getting called from City Hall that the sheriff has been leaving several angry messages. So I explained, you know, what I did. I, I said, you know, I didn't tell them I was down there doing that. I did call their dispatch and say, I'm here at this address talking to this person, but I don't need any help. So the sheriff kept, you know, called me several of those uh, nasty uh, messages. And when I explained to our chief what I was doing, how this transpired, he just said to me, and these were, are his exact words. Well, he doesn't want to hear what I have to say. And he never called him back. It was shortly after this that Alan and his partner, Casey, had their first meeting with Wesley Shermantine in San Joaquin Prison. It went real well. We probably talked to him for about three hours. The main thing that stood out with me in that interview was he told me about they dug up the wrong well because there's a pregnant black woman in that well because Herzog had her wired to a barbed wire fence and she was pleading for his life and he was torturing her and then he shot her in the head with a gun and then dumped her in the well. That stood out. He had some detail about that. He even told me that it was his 357 Magnum. It was a Ruger single action. I think 357 is a Ruger Blackhawk. And he even told me who he sold it to. You know, there's a lot of good information. He told me about the killing of the guy by the roadside who was in his truck. And, you know, of course, he minimizes the reason how it happened. He says, we just stopped to see if he needed help and he tried to attack us, so we had to kill him. That's very typical. We talked to him for, like I said, about three hours. He told us about family life and, you know, his mom and dad. And it was pretty much parallel to what Barbara Jackson had told us about about their growing up and, and things like that. 
Alan and Casey were due to meet with Shermantine again and thought while they were in the area, arranging a meeting with the sheriff at San Joaquin would be a good idea to clear the air and work out how they could work together. So we have this meeting and uh, it, it was real interesting when we showed up at San Joaquin, we walk, go on this big conference room and everybody's sitting there and, you know, we're waiting probably 10, 15 minutes for the sheriff. So he does his grand entry and, uh, you know, there are things that we can't say publicly about people, but we know them to be true. And as soon as he walked in, I knew, I knew exactly who we were dealing with. I've met people like him before. Basically, I, I felt like I knew him already. And he began with, you know, yelling almost, uh, saying, this is bullshit. You guys are, I, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but after he finished his diatribe, he suggested we tell, you know, how we got into this. I don't remember who suggested it or what, but I started and, and I, uh, I laid it all out how I got involved. And, you know, we've already talked to, uh, to Sherman Tyne. We're going to go talk to him the following day and things like that. There, there was, uh, so I did at the beginning, I did most of the talking and, you know, I just laid it out exactly how it happened. And then, then they kind of went around the room and the Stockton FBI agent, when he started talking, I was embarrassed for him. I mean, it, he just showed no investigative acumen. He just seemed as angry as a sheriff and he acted as though he was insulted. You know, pretty much if they would have set up a, a task force or invited other agencies who thought they had victims through the uh, speed freak killers, none of this would have happened. And that's, that's what you do when you know you have other jurisdictions involved. You involve them and you, you bring them in and you work with them. You don't just say, uh, you know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. You can go. We asked Alan how Terry Forche's case stands today. To this day, I don't know if Terry Forche is in San Joaquin, but I haven't had any information that led me away from that yet. There are other avenues to investigate, but, you know, that's, that's what doing uh, investigative work is. You go down rabbit holes until you check the whole hole and you're done. Then you go on to the next one. And we looked at other things besides San Joaquin, but this is something that we couldn't eliminate at all. And then when we interview Sherman Tyne, he tells us the last time they were in Reno, it was sometime in the... Uh, around the summer of 1996, which was when uh, Terry Forshee was last seen. During the course of the investigation, Allen felt that he was impeded by the sheriff in San Joaquin County. In fact, he was contacted by a detective, Kevin Atkins, from Hayward Police Department, who also had issues in a case that he was investigating. There was... Detective Kevin from Hayward Police Department was investigating Michaela Garrett. I believe she was she was a child who has been missing, and she was last seen uh, somewhere around a 7-Eleven store, I believe it was, with her bicycle. And so Kevin contacted me, 
and we began talking and I, I told him about uh, some of the issues I had with San Joaquin and he explained he was having the similar issues. We have heard before that San Joaquin seems to have an unusually high number of cold cases. We asked Alan if he thinks the new sheriff, Pat Withrow, will try and actively work to resolve some of these cases. Yeah, I do. I feel bad for San Joaquin because there's not a lot of money for cold cases. Uh, San Joaquin, I believe, has like 200 or more cold cases. So, you know, when you when you have that many, you start going after information as it comes in and then you get detracted from certain cases. And, you know, they, they might go at, at Shermantine full bore, but then the lower hanging fruit shows up and then they go after that for a while. Then you never get anything done. Problem with homicide detectives across the country is every morning you come in, you look at your desk and you go, you just have so much to do that, you know, you have to stop staring at the computer and get busy because you're just so overwhelmed at times. Alan wanted to share his final thought. What's important is how involved everybody is now. I know you guys interviewed uh, Pat Withrow, which was awesome. And, you know, when I call, I went to Reno PD a couple weeks ago and said, you know, you guys are interviewing me for this type of deal. I asked him if I could read the Terry Forche file again, refresh my memory. And uh, they thought it was a good idea that it was getting aired. They were accommodating. They, you know, put me in an office with all, all the documents. Reno PD was, I expected to be treated uh, like, oh, what are you doing here, you know? Everybody was accommodating, and I was, I was very proud of that. I was very proud of them. Terry Forche had had a very troubled childhood and had turned to drugs and prostitution as an adult. She had been in a number of abusive relationships, but wasn't thought to be dating anybody at the time of her disappearance. Terry-Anne Forche, aged 28, was last seen late August 1996 by a friend. The friend said she was wearing a white sundress with a floral design on it, a green ribbon in her hair and low-cut black shoes. She is thought to have been going to meet a client. When Terry went missing, she was of slim build, about five foot five inches tall, with brown hair and bright blue eyes. The man Terry was last seen with has been found and interviewed, but there is no indication that he has anything to do with her disappearance, and he has cooperated with the police fully. Terry's remains have never been found. If you have any information that may help in Terry's case, please contact us through the website, it's foulplay.com, or contact Reno Police Department. There is no need to leave your details if you would prefer to remain anonymous. Every little detail really does help. So even if you think it is insignificant, please do get in touch. Foul Play is brought to you by Best Fiends. We release a new episode in our series every other week. So I have to ask what in the world is there to do? while you're waiting for our next episode to drop. 
sure you can do your own deep dive down the Wikipedia wormhole, researching everything there is online about our case. But I think you know you'll enjoy our presentation much more. When your brain or your browser tabs are full to the brim, it might be time to take a load off. In between episodes and when I need to relax, I like to clear a few levels on Best Fiends. I can't tell you how much I love playing Best Fiends on my smartphone. I don't live near most of my family, so honestly, we use Best Fiends for a little fun competition. Anytime my brother or my mom pass someone, we always hear about it in our group text that's seriously called the Fiends Competition. By simply connecting your game to your Facebook, you can see where all your family and friends are in the game. And trust me when I say the satisfaction is so pleasing when you pass them. I've been ahead of my mom and brother for the last three weeks, and I'm closing in on my aunt. When you take your phone out, download Best Fiends, and make sure you add me on Facebook. I'm always happy to have a little more competition. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Foul Play is also brought to you by Ritual. When it comes to multivitamins, I look for options that don't have synthetic fillers. Did you know that some have animal byproducts like sheep's wool and gelatin from hooves and hides? So do you really know what's in your multivitamin? This is where Ritual comes in. It's truly not your typical multivitamin. With this clean, vegan-friendly formula that's made with key ingredients and forms that our body can actually use without any of those shady extras. I've been taking Ritual for Men now for three months, and I seriously can't say enough great things about them. I trust the ingredients, and their fresh-tasting delayed-release capsules are designed to dissolve later, not in the sensitive areas of my stomach. And you can use them with or without food. Now they're available for women, men, and teens. Ritual multivitamins are specifically developed to help support different life stages. They're delivered directly to your door every month with free shipping, always. You deserve to know what's in your multivitamin. That's why Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Just visit ritual.com slash foul. That's R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash F-O-U-L to start your ritual today. Our second case is that of Tracy Diane Melton. According to police reports, Tracy, a mother of three, was last seen on May 6, 1998, at a clinic in Stockton, California, just six months before Cindy Vanderheiden went missing. When Tracy went missing, she was 32 years old, 5 foot, 4 inches tall, 135 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes. Her friends and family said that she would normally wear blue jeans, t-shirts, and hiking-style boots. Her sister Sharon described in an interview with HuffPost how no one could find her, that they had called the authorities 
but were told that she was an adult, so they had to just wait and see. Sharon said that Tracy's children, aged 11, 7, and 6, were distraught. They were too young to understand what happened. The family carried out searches and asked the media for help, but nothing happened, and they got no answers. Sharon went on to say, I can't even describe what it was like. It was a never-ending torture. Every day, I woke up and wondered what happened to her. In 2003, a roadside crew found what they believed to be a human femur near a highway in Stockton. They reported their findings to the relevant authorities, and the bone was passed to the California Department of Justice to be analyzed. Around the same time, Sharon was contacted and was asked to provide a DNA sample. She was told that they wanted to put the details on a national database to give them the best chance of finding her sister. Tracy was missing for 14 years before the family got any answers. In January 2012, Sharon, along with Tracy's children, found out that the bone found by the roadside crew in 2003 had belonged to Tracy and that she was no longer alive. So what happened? Why did it take so long for this family to get answers? Sharon explained to the Huff Post that she had been told by the police that the bone had been tested for DNA in 2003, but there was not a 100% match. Apparently they tried again in 2008, and again there was no 100% match. And then in April 2011, they were able to confirm that the bone was that of missing lady Tracy Melton. So why did it take nine months for the family to be told that Tracy's remains had been found? Well, Sharon was told that, quote, it just slipped through the cracks, end quote. And Sheriff Moore said he accepted full responsibility for the oversight. Here we can hear Sheriff Moore's public apology. To the Melton family and the community at large, I accept responsibility for our failure to provide notification to the family upon our receipt of identity confirmation of Ms. Melton last April. There are no excuses forthcoming, only the pledge that we will do whatever we can in support of the Melton family in this case. Further, an internal review is being conducted and new procedures are being developed to make sure this unfortunate incident does not occur in the future. I do need to correct an error in the recent news article which related that Ms. Melton's remains had been found by a road crew in the Linden area. The actual location was in the area of Holt Road and Highway 4. There was an intensive search of the area for any additional evidence when the remains were discovered in 2003. However, we shall resurvey the scene for any possible evidence. Again, I wish to express my deepest regrets to the Melton family. One of Tracy's children, Bobby Carter, who was 20 when she learned that her mother's remains had been found, was quoted in an ABC News article as saying that she and her family didn't believe that the detective's phone call to notify them of Tracy's remains was coincidental. Her aunt, Sharon, had long suspected that her sister was murdered by the Speed Freak killers. In fact, Sharon had reached out to famous bounty hunter Lena Padilla about two weeks before the call. Sharon had also called detectives on the case and spoke with them to see if Shermantine had given up any details about her sister, as she knew he was cooperating with the police about locations. 
About a week later, she received the call about her sister's partial remains being identified the previous April. Quote, they should have let us know so that we can come to peace with what happened, end quote, Carter said. Quote, if it wasn't for my aunt reaching out to them, bring my mum to their attention, we probably wouldn't have known, end quote. Quite rightly, Tracy's family holds a lot of anger about what happened. They had no idea that the bone that was found in 2003 was suspected to be that of Tracy. The police also did very little to find the rest of Tracy's remains. They apparently were going to do a perimeter search back in 2002, but that never happened. So, all the family had was her femur bone. Leonard Padilla, who was known to be a straight talker, was quoted in the Huff Post as saying, It's total incompetence. That's just how effed up the sheriff's department is. The blame lies at the feet of Sheriff Steve Moore. He is running the department in an incompetent manner. While Tracy Melton is not a confirmed victim of the Speed Freak Killers, she was in the right area at the right time. So, they cannot be ruled out. Tracy's family would still like to know what happened to her. If you have any information about Tracy Melton's disappearance or murder, please get in touch. Every piece of information can really help. <laughs> 